0: So, good evening, everyone. Has it been a long day? Yes? Yes. But the good news is you're still here. Whatever happened today, it didn't completely scare you away. You're still here. We are still here. I think in this retreat more than others, there's a certain emphasis, which perhaps you began to feel this afternoon in the inquiry, the emphasis on a uh, process of discovery, of un, un, uh, of unlayering what we already know about aging, about life, about uh, what we've learned thus far in this human journey, and that when we come together and begin to share it and hear it from others and speak it for ourselves, speak our actual direct experience, we're setting in motion a very rich discovery process So it's uh, perhaps, I hope, obvious by now that we're not here to tell you how to age, you know, the five-step, five-star recovery of your inner child or something. It's not going to be like that. It's more about we are creating the conditions for your own journey to reveal itself to you with all the mystery and the profundity that that might have. So tonight I want to pick up a little bit on some of the themes I mentioned last night and then take us further into, uh, hopefully, an exploration of how this practice can help us on our journey, how it can guide us in a stage of life that is marked we could say, by unpredictability. So how do, we, how do we live with, how do we work with that fact of unpredictability? Years ago, Stephen Levine, who used to teach large workshops on dying and death, he, tell, he told a story about uh, standing in front of a very large audience once, and looking out and asking them how many of you are going to die and he said it took a really long time <laughs> for everyone to raise their hands and maybe even you are seeing that in yourself oh di- oh yeah oh oh right right i'm going to die but maybe it's way out there in front somewhere you know it's a long ways away yet or so we think, but we can't be sure. We can't know for sure. We, we get this idea of death in little flashes, usually about other people dying. But when we come a little closer, we see that, okay, okay, I'm going to die. But when? Please tell me so I can prepare. Sometimes I feel that way around money. You know, I don't know how, how much money I'm going to need because I don't, know <laughs> I don't know how long we're talking about. It. Or how. Something, we're going to die some way, somehow, but we don't know. We have no idea, really, so this is what I mean by unpredictability. One of the ways I mean unpredictability. So I'd like to begin. Uh, well, I've already begun, haven't I? I'd like to continue the talk with a, a, a sharing a little bit of a roadmap for this stage of life, and it comes from a gerontologist named Jean Cohen who posited, and I think it was a great contribution to gerontology, he proposed this idea that, that this stage of life that we are now entering and some of us are deeply into, because there's a wide range of ages on this retreat, from people in their 50s to people in their 80s. That's a, those are different experiences of the aging process. In fact, in my, my observation, it seems to me that each decade, de- decade, decade. <laughs> I think you say decade, but I'm not absolutely sure. Each decade offers a different phase of aging or getting older or understanding the truth of things, the truth of life. The 50s is one, the 60s is another the 70s, and now I'm well into my 70s. I'll be 79 in October. It's a different view. I imagine that will continue into the 80s if I'm fortunate enough to be here. So we're talking about different perceptions, but overall, we're all dealing with transition. So here's Gene Cohen and what he said about This developmental transition from adulthood into age age, getting older. We could just say getting older. So he said the reality of adult life is a much richer and more complex tapestry of struggle, growth, and creative potential. We are at 50, 60, 70, 80, and older not so very different from children of four, five, six or older who struggle through developmental transitions and life changes. We progress at our own pace, each of us. If we struggle or hesitate at times, it is not because we are older and less capable, but because we are in the process of developmental transition. This developmental transition often goes unrecognized by the culture and therefore unsupported. That is so important. And that is what, why it's so, it, I feel, important for us to get together and hear each other in this understanding of transition, hear what, how we are all uh, figuring it out in different ways living it out. As a result, we often misunderstand the nature of our struggle and overlook the tremendous opportunities for new growth. It would be absurd to suggest that a child who cannot read at age three will never be a reader. And yet we judge ourselves just that harshly when we limit our expectations of life at age 60 or any age to what we are or what we know or what we can do at that age, instead of seeing ourselves as works in progress, capable of lifelong learning, growth, and change. These developmental steps required the same leaps of faith, risk-taking, and emotional vulnerability as they, de- as they did when we were five and learning to tie our shoes or say goodbye to our parents at school each day. They also offer a similar potential for discovery and delight as we age. Just as we celebrate the toddler's struggle to walk, we need to recognize the steps of the adult development as a building process, not a crisis. Aging is not a crisis, it's not an illness, not a crisis or a dead end and celebrate the creative potential possible for each of us on our separate journeys. I think that's a beautiful attempt to describe a new idea about this time of life. It's for your consideration. It's not some absolute roadmap, but I find it very uh, life-affirming and human and uh realistic and also uh it encourages me when i read it i think oh yeah that's right it's not over because the culture is so kind of like you know if you're 70 it's over you know over the hill all that when is over the hill by the way (laughs) I, i think oh my god i'm over the hill but maybe huh Oh, 40, wow. Well, I guess we're all over the hill then. At least that hill. So how does this developmental transition look on the ground? What, is it, what, is, what happens to our lives when we are coming up against some of this struggle? In developmental transition, we may feel caught between worlds. The old world of busyness and adult responsibilities, whether it's raising a family, work, busyness, all the obligations of being an adult. Between that world and a new as yet unknown world, which sometimes is called retirement, that maybe is going out of fashion, I don't know, or elderhood, or... What to call it? We don't really have an agreed-upon name for what this new, more engaged, longer life is. But these, this transition does uh, evoke in us the sense of new priorities. The issues are no longer about productivity, competition, efficiency, being a workaholic, auditioning for some new role in your life. You did the audition, you got the part, that's done. (laughs) So instead, new questions might be arising, such as, who am I now? As we let go of the old identities, the old roles we played, it opens up a lot of space and time and perhaps a a questioning inside of us. What matters to me now? What's my life about now? What do I do with my time? What do I give my attention to? What is calling me? What is the legacy I wish to leave when I do leave this world? How to prepare for death? Is there a way to prepare myself for my demise? How can I prepare my loved ones? Carl Jung had a beautiful word for this kind of transition state, which is the word liminal. The word liminal comes from the Latin word limin. I think it's pronounced that, meaning threshold. Any point or place of entering or beginning, a liminal space is the time between the what was and what's next. Think of a threshold. You're standing in the threshold between two worlds. You're leaving behind the old world. You haven't quite yet entered the new world. You're in a a liminal space. He says it is a place of transition, waiting, and not knowing. Where it's like being on a you know like waiting in an airport. You're you've left home, your bags are packed, you have a destination in mind, but you're maybe your flight is delayed, and you're just in this you know the the new thing hasn't happened yet, so you're. You're in this in-between state. So this is a more internal description of this developmental transition where we are, yeah, we're, we're letting go, but we don't know exactly where we're going or who we are or what's going to be next. This liminal space is where all transformation takes place if we learn to wait and let it form us. So we're not fighting it, we're not hurrying it up, but we're opening to this perhaps very new experience for many of us of being a little more, uh, it's, it's, a more, uh, it's, a more it's a place of more not knowing what, what, what's going on. But it's not, it's not a not knowing that is bad or frightening. It's a not knowing that can actually, actually has a lot to teach us. But when we first enter it, we may not feel that. We may feel a little more vulnerable in the liminal space, a little more emotionally uh, vulnerable. We may feel more alone in the sense of recognizing that your journey through this life, each of us are, each of us has a journey through this life that is unique and singular. Even if we have families and children and grandchildren and, you know, the full thing, we still, we are born alone and we die alone and we have each had a, different experience in this life. A unique journey. Robert Louis Stevenson said, sooner or later, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. (laughs) I love that. It seems so true to me. And at this stage of life, we're we're beginning to, you know, taste the food, (laughs) We're beginning to see what the banquet is, you know, what, what's there. The consequences have been ours, are our, our, our ours. We choose, and each choice we have made carries a consequence in this life. That's the law of karma that the Buddha talked about. Consequences, that everything ripples vibrates moves out and has an impact on ourselves and on others perhaps in an endless and an endless ripple the ripple never comes to an end perhaps we are more aware of how this works now and it may provoke a certain humility and also compassion for our shared imperfect humanity because certainly all of us in this banquet of consequences can recognize some of the bitter tastes the food that maybe we wished we hadn't it hadn't come to back to us in that way we may taste the bitter fruits of some of the things we regret or the mistakes we've made. We all make mistakes. So this this part of life may also be about recognizing that, forgiving ourselves, forgiving others. It's a time of reckoning, we could say. Okay, so this in this liminal space, this developmental transition these are the kinds of questions and reflections that may come up for us and Eckhart Tolle writes about this as as the leaving behind of our outer purpose in the world that when we are uh, becoming uh, mature adults we are usually um, busy fulfilling particular roles that we have been trained or encouraged to follow we're We're following the guidelines for raising children and making money. And we're doing a lot that is sort of given to us as our task as mature adults. But as we go through this transition, he said, we then have a chance to turn towards our inner purpose, which is different from satisfying our outer purpose. And one of the big differences is that our inner purpose is self-chosen. It's not dictated to us by the culture or by the society or by our families. No, it is something that is uniquely ours, that only we can recognize. So maybe it's a passion for painting or writing poetry or going on a journey that you've always wanted to go to on and something happens that, you know, is very meaningful. It's, your, it's yours to discover this sense of inner purpose. Of course, a lot of people, when they slow down and retire, so to speak, um, can get very busy. You know, we live in a culture where the cult of busyness is rather pervasive to be busy is like a sign of you're doing it right or you're you know you're you're still engaged in life if you're if you're busy but does being busy satisfy the inner purpose does being busy open your hearts your minds to the truth of life Does being busy inspire a deeper exploration to find the deeper meaning in your life? Does being busy inform us as to what matters now that we see the horizon of our life that we don't have forever here in the face of our mortality? What is it that matters so mindfulness this is where mindfulness steps in and has so much to offer us because the domain of mindfulness is not about being busy it's not about the to-do list it's not about getting things done it's about being it's about your being it teaches us how to unbusy ourselves how to awaken from the trance of doing, and come into a more direct experience of what it means to be here, to be alive, to have a precious human body. We don't really know how precious this human body is until maybe it's, we see that it, it will be taken from us someday or, or perhaps through an illness or an accident. And we recover. And we're like, oh my God. Amazing grace to be here at all. So we bring all that on retreat. And our retreat, a retreat, any retreat, this retreat offers us a very unique challenge it's really unlike any other endeavor i i've ever encountered in my life Um, and it it's a it's a it requires a different orienting of ourselves towards what it means to become more conscious what it means to learn about ourselves what it means to awaken Before I came to this practice, I had already gotten a Ph.D. in clinical psychology because I thought psychology would give me the answers. And indeed, I learned a tremendous amount. I had a very rich experience, a very challenging experience, you know, Uh, learning all the theories of the great psychologists from Freud and Jung on down. And when I was in graduate school, the, the emphasis was on the humanistic psychologies and the transpersonal psychologies. And that was like a breakthrough, you know, more uh, allowing more of a recognition of the spiritual dimension in human beings. But it was all very theoretical, it was about theories. So when I came to practice, after being immersed in that world for maybe eight years or something. Um, And I heard the the, the Buddha's teaching, which we all hear at some point when we come on retreat, the Buddha said, as part of his invitation to people to learn and practice, he said, come see for yourself if what I am teaching you is true or not. Check it out. See for yourself. I was blown away by that. Really? I can see for myself? It's not a theory. It's not a belief. It's not a, something I have to adapt, adopt as a, a, a credo or a belief system. I had never encountered anything like that in all my years of graduate school. Nobody had said, come see for yourself. <laughs> you know? It was all the, what people thought about this, that, and the other thing. Not to say that that's not of value. I learned a tremendous amount about psychology. But this come see for yourself, I felt just like, wow, this is for me. This is what I've been looking for. And I guess I did find enough of what the Buddha taught that it kept me you know I to this day I still feel like yeah what what is found is just like a jewel what is found is like a hidden treasure and so yay Buddha for offering that to us and for seeing the potential for that in every human that came to him nobody was he didn't say come see for yourself to some people and not to others. No, he made across the board that invitation because he knew in the human mind and heart there is this enormous potential waiting to, it's like a garden waiting to bloom. It just needs the right fertilizer and the soil and the uh, conditions and it will blossom. There's no, it just can't not. So having that uh, invitation was a, a big step forward in my practice, but it wasn't without its challenges because also when we look to our actual experience, we often feel discouraged. Monkey mind our minds are not you know we say follow the breath be with the breath what is it is it you know what does it do it doesn't exactly obey it doesn't exactly give you inspiration from the moment you sit down it gives you a lot of challenges challenging states of mind and heart which we will address more in the coming days of this retreat but More than anything, it also gives us another approach to looking and learning from our experience than thinking about things. Have you noticed the mind loves to think? Anybody notice that in your mind today? How many thought trains have you jumped on today and taken a little journey down to the past, to the future, to fantasy, to wondering, to analyzing, to, you know, that's what we all do. We think about it, think about it, think about it. But it never, we never arrive where we so hopefully, you know, hope that it will take us to this revelation, like, um, There was a monk who used to teach here, Achin Amaro. Some of you may have met him. Anybody have met Achin Amaro? Lovely monk from England. And I love what he said. He he was talking about the fact that you can't think your way to awakening. You can read all the Buddhist books, all the papers, all the research. You can read about neuroscience. You can do all this thinking about it and... And it won't take you to where you're (laughs) wanting to go. It's back in the land of theory when we're just sitting and thinking about it. So Amaro said um, trying to think your way to enlightenment is like trying to drink water from the word cup, (laughs) it doesn't give you the water that you're wanting. So mindfulness teaches us about another way of learning about ourselves and about life and about reality. It shows us another way than thinking about things. It shows us a more direct knowing of ourselves, of reality, through uh, our direct experience. That's why we bother you over and over again by saying, you know, coming back to the body, coming back to the breathing, coming back here, now, what's here and now. Because that is where the treasure lies in the present moment. Korean master Chanul said, meditation puts us in touch, I love this line, with the knowledge that has no teacher. The knowledge that only we can be in direct contact with in our own experience. Meditation. The the knowledge that liberates cannot be given to you by someone else. I can say as a teacher, well, try this, try that, but I'm only pointing it's really just a a, you know a pointer we only find it in our own experience in the immediacy of just what's here now i can't emphasize enough what a jewel that is to know about you will you can find your way through any difficult situation in your entire life through the application of that direct knowing of how to look at your experience how to be in touch with the truth of your experience so what it requires though it asks it requires something from us which is that we give up our ideas about how things are and instead look more directly through awareness, through our own attention to how it is. Thich Han wrote this, for things to reveal themselves to us, we need to be ready to abandon our views about them. If we want to know the nature of water, we could have some chemical chemistry, you know descriptions and molecules and everything but if we really want to know water we we need the direct experience of taking the water and putting it in our mouth and swallowing or like Trungpa Rinpoche used to say it it like if you go downtown and you, you want to go out to dinner and you wander around to all the restaurants and read the menus. That's not the same as actually going in one of the restaurants and eating the meal. It's eating the meal that will nourish you, that will give you the sustenance you're looking for. So... So there is a practice. I, I I should tell you first. No, I won't tell you first. I'll tell you second. Um, I think I'll tell you first about one of my uh, early teachers. I used to go to Barrie, Massachusetts, in the autumn. Some of you have been there, and sit what is now known as the three-month course. It was um, it was and still is going every. September, October, November into December, there is a three-month practice period at insight meditation where you can go and practice in silence for three months. And I did this for several years in a row. And at the end of each of those courses, we would be visited by a Korean Zen master named Sansanim. And after sitting, of course, we were very open, very sensitive. And I always look forward to his visit because he was, we had been in silence and we'd been very mindful. and and He he just came in with all his, (laughs) I don't know how to describe it. He was like a one-man parade. He just had big energy and laughed a lot and, and he had one teaching, and he would, he would say it over and over and over again. And of course, because of his style and because of his, the truthfulness of what he was saying, this teaching has stayed with me all these years. So the teaching was, uh, he said the most important thing, and I'll, I'll try to imitate him, most important thing, only don't know mind. Mind. He used to yell that, only, don't know mind. Who are you? Don't know. Where are you from? Don't know. Where are you going? Don't know. How long will you live? Don't know. And he would grin, you know. And it would be like, really, is it that simple? You just give up everything you know and, you know. But he was pointing to something that we all resist, which is this desire to know, desire to know how it is, what's gonna happen, who am I, how it all works. We want certainty. So this teaching is really uh, antidote to that. So let's play with it a little. I'm gonna ask you some questions. I invite you to close your eyes for a moment. Right now, as you're sitting and noticing your body, your breathing, your sensations, you hear the sound of my voice, you notice your mood, your thoughts. You're just sitting, right? Nothing much going on, nothing special. Right now, is there anything urgent that you need to know? Is there something burning that you need to know? Really, right now, what is it you need to know? Anybody have anything? It's a very curious thing that when we look in the moment there's rarely anything that we are urgently needing to know. When we are practicing, what are we with? We're with the breath, we're with the sensations, we're with the flow of thoughts, we're this, that, and the other. Now, maybe something comes along and a thought comes and you say, oh, my God, i got to figure out that decision and what am I going to tell Charlie when he calls me on Monday and blah, 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 blah. You may get momentarily caught up in something like that and it may feel somewhat urgent but then you have the you have a practice that says what what's going on here oh i'm getting all you know caught up in this story about what this person said and you know wh- what they need and what i'm going to do and so you work with that you with mindfulness you can say oh okay i see that's what's happening And you can allow yourself to feel the story, the emotion, the sensations. And you can notice something which is always present, but which we overlook constantly the truth of change. You can notice this story is in a process of, even as you're sitting there, changing. It's not permanent, it's only temporary. So we learn through practice how to not know and be quite fine with that understanding. We learn in small ways that we can be present and spend, you know, minutes, hours not knowing anything particularly uh, dramatic or needed. We learn to trust this more amorphous, you could say, liminal space of just being here without an agenda, without a plan, without a need to know. And that's where freedom lies, where we are more interested in what's here than in what's coming the next minute. Donald was sharing a poem of his at lunch in which he brilliantly wrote this line. Let me think, can I find it? The freedom is not needing to know what's coming next. Is that it? Yes. Our own Donald wrote that. And it was a poem that was published, right? So he's a published dharma poet anyway this is freedom when we can be present without that (sighs) plan i gotta make a plan i gotta get an agenda going so this is a very useful kind of thing to know about this state of just resting in the present without this uh Plan or an agenda for what comes next, because certainly, at this stage of life, if we keep looking for certainty, we are going to suffer because there's so much that we can't know. You know when am I going to die? who's going to be with me? What will happen to Aunt Joe? You know, what will happen to my loved ones? Who will be with me when I die? These are unknowable things. We can't really know the answer. So can we find a way to make peace with this not knowing? Can we find a way to trust the ease and well-being that comes when we just let go and are present when we are here fully awake but without the angst of... Worrying about what's next. So, Roshi Wendy Egyoku from uh, the LA Zen Center about this state of not knowing. She says, difficult circumstances like political upheaval, the sudden loss of a loved one or the unexpected termination of your job can make life feel suddenly very unstable. But actually, according to the Buddha, things are always unstable. It's just that we have a tendency to live life from a set of unquestioned beliefs that make our lives feel solid. How can you know what will happen next? You can't. Because the universe, from its tiniest particles, to its largest forms is continually in flux. Not knowing trains you to continually set aside your fixed points of view and open to what you had previously excluded. What we have previously excluded may be an idea that certain things in our lives will continue as they are. Like, I am a person with money. I will always have money. Well, maybe not. Or, I can count on my children to take care of me. Well, maybe not. Or, I am healthy. Well, so far. Think of all the body parts that we depend on your eyes, our ears our bones, our blood, all the parts. One part starts going and we feel, wait, I I need that part. (laughs) (laughs) Our solid, dependable world begins to dissolve, and it will, and that is the nature of things. So, not knowing is not a state of ignorance, of shrinking and constricting away from encountering life, but actually a very daring embrace of the truth of our situation that we don't know, we can't know, there are unknowables in this world. So, we learn to be at ease with not knowing. And meditation increases our tolerance for not knowing. Perhaps even increases our appetite for it. Yogi Berra, a great guru, said, it's not what we know that gets us into trouble. No, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so delusion that's a good definition of delusion what we know for sure that just ain't so don't not knowing will not get you into trouble it will put you in alignment with reality with the truth of things in this moment that's the truth of it i don't know much better to be with that than with some big story of worry and fear and agitation and, oh my God, what's going to happen? No, we don't know. Try that. Stay there. Ground yourself in that spacious, easeful state of just don't know mind. So in our practice, we can recognize this powerful urge to know, to try to find the answer, to figure it out, nail it down. On the other side is often this simple, I don't know, requires a certain humility, certain letting go of things that we had thought we knew so so solidly. It is a deep retraining of our mind and heart. So all these years since I heard Sansanim's teaching on Only Don't Know, I, at the time I was a little bit mystified why he would shout that so often. <laughs> but as I get older, I, I, and as I've practiced, I have total appreciation for what he taught us, and I say yes. That's exactly it. That's how it is. So thank you for your attention. Let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening.